I still have dreams that I'm in college and it's exam week. Do any of you have those dreams? <laughs> Pastor Andrew does because he, he just got out of college. I mean, so that's like, you got to have those dreams still. I, and my dreams usually go like this. It's like my last week of, of college and I'm going to be done. I'm getting married in two weeks. That, that's real life. That wasn't a dream. I got married like two weeks after I, I, I got done with school. But, but it was like exam week and I sleep in, right? I sleep in, I miss the exam, my professor doesn't let me pass, I I fail the class, and I can't graduate. That's how the dream goes. No marriage, no graduation, don't pass, go. Uh, It's it's not good. And I still have them to this day. I occasionally have those dreams. And sometimes I wake up and I think, was there ever a time when I really did skip an exam? Did that ever really happen to me? Because they're so real. Do you ever have a dream so much you think, maybe that's real, you know? Like, maybe that really happened to me at some point. I don't think it did, but... But it just, just that, it just sits there. And my new one is, my, my new anxious dream is I, I get to church and I have to preach and I have no notes in front of me. I didn't study, I forgot, and I got to say something. That's terrible. That's terrible. I hate that one. <laughs> um, on a more serious note, there are other things that cause us anxiety that, that, that's not funny at all. Sometimes we're waiting on, on, on a doctor to get back to us on a test. And we have dreams about that, and that's much more serious. No laughing matter. And it just sits with us. We're waiting for that phone call. What are we going to do? What are we going to hear? <clears throat> I think if you take the, those, those concerns that we carry about a future phone call, about an exam, as, as silly as that is, but when you take those concerns, multiply them by a million Maybe you start to get close to, to understanding Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the weight he was carrying. He wasn't waiting for a phone call. He was waiting to carry the cross. And he knew it was coming. And so he carried all of that weight into the garden that night and asked his disciples to pray for him because he needed it. And they're sleeping. Um, put the, can you put the first up, Jim? Uh, the next one, please. On reaching the place, Jesus said to them, Pray that you won't fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And even though the scripture doesn't say it, um, a lot of people have the feeling that... uh, Satan may have been present that night. I mean, he may have been. He may have been. I mean, if you think about it, uh, I believe in, in the gospel writer, when, when he talks about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, he's out there 40 days fasting, right? And, and Satan comes to him and tempts him. And I'll give you, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. I, I can give you everything. Which, which, of course, you know means you don't have to go to the cross. You, you can have everything. You can have power but you don't have to suffer to get to that point. And then it says, uh, after those three temptations, Jesus resisted by quoting scripture, and then it says Satan left him until an opportune time. So the gospel writer says Satan's going to come back and tempt him. He's waiting for that opportune moment to come back and tempt Jesus. Maybe it was the garden. I mean, we don't know for sure. The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen that movie, definitely put Satan right there in the garden telling him, you can't do this. No one's ever done anything like this. And and I wonder, 
All I know is Jesus was in incredible anguish and concern over what was going to happen to the point where he said, man, if there's another way, I I would take that if there was another way, but not my will. Now, what he was doing in carrying the cross is a fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. Can we get the Isaiah 53 passage? After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. It had been prophesied hundreds of years earlier that there was going to come a person that was going to bear the iniquities, the sins of people. This is the way it had to happen. Suffering. The suffering of his soul. And so we would rightly call Jesus the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant prophesied about in Isaiah. And so when we get to Revelation chapter 13, we see that we, being God's people, are also called, called by God to suffer. Maybe not on a Roman cross, but we have been called by God to suffer like him. Would you turn to Revelation chapter 13? Revelation chapter 13. If you are uh, just joining us this morning for this series, you have a lot of catching up to do. No. Um, (laughs) No. But uh, uh, our conviction is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says, I am exiled for the testimony of Jesus, and this is about Jesus. Revelation is not about the Antichrist. Revelation is about the Christ, even though this morning we were looking at Revelation 13, which really is about the Antichrist. But, but, you'll see that our calling in Revelation 13 is to be like our Savior, is to suffer like our Savior, because He is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Revelation 13. The first thing you're going to see, and I want to explain it before you get there, you're going to see that the dragon is standing on the shore of the sea. And maybe you wonder why Satan, looking like a dragon, is standing by water. Well, have you ever seen old-fashioned maps before they knew the world was round and, and they thought if you just traveled in one direction, if you traveled west too far, maybe you'd fall off the world or maybe there'd be a great sea monster that would swallow you up. Well, they had stories like, kind of like that in first century times where there was monsters in the sea that could come and get you. And John's not trying to say uh, Satan is that monster in the sea. What he's saying is he's like that. He's like that. He's this... He's this creature that hates humanity and he's coming out of the sea and he's bringing evil with him. He's much more real than those mythological creatures that you tell your kids at bed, tell your kids about at bedtime. He's real. And he brings with him two other beasts, two other servants that will do his will. And that's what we're looking at today. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? 
the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. You ever wonder what that means? The Lamb was slain before the creation of the world. When I was a little kid, I thought, well, how did Jesus die before God made the world, right? (laughs) And I think my best take on it right now, and you may have a better one, but as I look at this, is that, that it was always God's intention to send the Lamb. Before the creation of the world, God intended. Before he made anything, God's purpose was to send his son to die for you and me. Before he spoke anything into existence, it was, I'm going to send my son. And when God says he's going to do something, and his purpose, if that's his will, his sovereign will, you better believe he's going to do it. So you could say, the lamb was slain before the creation of the world. Because if God's going to get it done, it's going to get done. Now, we're looking at the first beast. And I have a few points. If you have your notes in front of you, you can look at those, fill in the blanks. Otherwise, you can follow on the screens behind me. Uh, don't want to spend a lot of time here. Uh, I want to I want to get somewhere where we're going with this, the whole point. But um, the first beast, the Antichrist, the beast's head and horns are similar to the dragon, right? We looked at the dragon last week. Well, the beast is described in very similar ways with these heads and these horns, suggesting, again, and and it makes clear in the scripture that the beast gets its power from Satan. He gets his authority from Satan. He's Satan's servant. He's like his master. Secondly, it says the beast or the Antichrist animal descriptions are similar to the animal empires in Daniel 7. Some of you studied Daniel. I think you ladies went through a Daniel study uh, last year uh, with Beth Moore. And, uh, if you looked at Daniel 7, you have these different animal empires. And this beast, this Antichrist, has features of all of them. He has all these features. Suggesting, perhaps, that he's the worst. That's the blank there. He's the worst of them all. He is the final empire. He is the Roman Empire resurgent. <laughs> he's back. And... Uh, He's the worst. Number three, the beast also has connections to kings in Revelation 17. I could talk about that a while, but I'll wait till Revelation 17. How about that? All right. Number four, the beast experiences a resurrection of sorts. So he has this head and the head's wounded. And that leads a lot of speculation that maybe that maybe the beast is, is kind of killed and experiences some sort of revival, some sort of resurrection, and people see this and go, how does this happen? This, this person must have supernatural power. We've got to follow this person. It adds to his credibility in the world, this fatal wound. Other people suggest that maybe that head stands for a nation and the beast comes in at, to some nation that's on the verge of bankruptcy or maybe in the middle of war, and, and the beast resurrects a whole nation. He brings a nation from the brink of ruin. And people say, if you can do that for a nation, we'll follow you. We'll follow you. But he experiences some sort of of resurrection. Again, mimicking Christ. Number five, uh, the beast is the Antichrist. We know him as the Antichrist, or in Thessalonians, he's called the man of lawlessness. 
But to the first century church, it was Nero. More than likely, first century, if you're in the first century church and you're reading this, you're going, this is Nero. Emperor Nero, who likes to light up Christians in his gardens, likes to throw them to the lions. Emperor Nero of Rome. In fact, when Nero died, and and you know how it is, uh, it's so different today. If someone dies, you know, we can get on the internet and you can see it, you can watch the news, you can get a telephone call if a famous person passes away. But, But in this time, it's all word of mouth. It's all word of mouth. You're spreading the news as best you can. And so when Nero died, news went out that he had passed away and and people were talking. But there were rumors also circulating that he was resurrected, that he had come back. And and as as other little would-be emperors fought for control of Rome, all these rumors were circulating. Yeah, he's back. He's coming back. And so there was talk of a resurrection for Nero. So I think the first century church would have read this and gone, oh, yeah, yeah. We were under heavy, heavy persecution by this person. And there's even talk that he's back. Now, I don't know what line of what side you fall on, whether Revelation's first century or Revelation's for now or for the future. Um, I'm a futurist. I lean that way. Uh, But at the same time, it seems like God's prophecies often have a cyclical nature. That is, there's partial fulfillments. And Nero certainly may have been a partial fulfillment of this text but the ultimate fulfillment still to come with the Antichrist to come. That's the first beast. That's who we call the Antichrist. And uh, the world is going to follow him. The world will be enamored with him. We Christians will not be. uh, And we'll see that in a minute, how we're going to see through all this. But uh, he is going to have a ton of political power. But there's one more beast to come. And this beast seems to have more religious power. Take a look at this one. I want to skip verses uh, 9 and 10 because I want to look at them at the end of this. So skip 9 and 10. We will come back to it. Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. It performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. The number is 666. Um, second beast. The second beast is similar to the first, but seems to be, number one, a religious leader. A religious leader. He's ordering worship of the first beast. He's ordering worship. Uh, secondly, he performs miracles. So people see these signs and wonders and say, this is, this is the real deal. This is supernatural. And then thirdly, he forces people 
to take the mark of 666. Now, um, if you're in the first century church and you're thinking about all of this, uh, it may seem odd that the bees, the second bee sets up this image and the image seems to have special powers. Um, in the first century church, uh, there was already talk and already, uh, uh, I would say, insightful writers that would talk about what happens in a temple for pagan worship. So you go into the temple for pagan worship and you're going to worship the gods, right? And you're bowing down before this statue and suddenly the statue starts moving. Oh yeah, the statue starts moving. The statue breathes fire. It moves around. It talks. And people are saying, this is amazing and they're worshiping this statue. Now, insightful writers have said, well, that's the, that's the priests of this god pulling the strings behind the curtain, okay? It's like the Wizard of Oz. It's smoke and mirrors, you know? And, and they're making these images move and talk and impressing people. I'm not saying that Satan can't uh, uh, give some of his power to an image and make it move. I mean, maybe that was happening too. But we do have records of people, writers, saying, wait a minute, this is all fake. It's all fake to confuse the people worshiping these statues. All right? So when they read about this guy, this second beast, perhaps then the church is saying, but this... this either seems real to them, this is the real deal, uh, a person with real satanic power making these images, these statues actually move for real. In any case, the second beast is promoting the worship of the first beast and does so by enforcing a mark. Now, the mark of the beast has gotten a lot of, I mean, people have speculated this so long. I could speculate a long time too, but I'm not. Uh, let's just go over six facts. How about that? Stick to the facts. What can we really know about this mark 666? Because if we want to speculate, I mean, if one of my, what, I mean, there's, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of funny ones. I, I enjoyed one that was like, uh, Ronald Reagan's middle name it has six letters. So he was thought to be the antichrist for a while. You know, someone said that. So, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of that and I'm staying away from that. Okay. So six facts about 666, uh, Fact number one, the beast forces people to take this mark. It's not an option. You have to take it. You have to take it. Number two, the mark is connected to the economy. You want to buy or sell? You have to have the mark, which is similar to the first century as well. Because let's say you were a carpenter and you belong to a trade guild, this grouping of like-minded individuals working in a certain way, you often had to offer the right sacrifices to the right gods to be part of that economy. Once you stood up and said, I follow Jesus, I will not offer those sacrifices, then you were on the outs in the economy of some first century cities. If you want to read more about that, there's an awesome fictional, historical fictional book, but well-researched, called uh, Letters to Pergamum. I forget the author off the top of my head, but um, Letters to Pergamum, it's just the story about a guy who uh, gets saved in the first century and how it changes his life. And it's well-researched, so you're reading about how life really was back then. Super interesting. I highly recommend it. But in that, this guy in the book, fictional, of course, but he was part of a trade guild. He gets saved, and suddenly he's on the outs. He was going to build a coliseum. He was going to build like one of these big uh, arenas for Caesar in his city. And now he's saved. Now he's got to change. And uh, he's in trouble. Uh, Very interesting reading. But the mark is connected to the economy. Buying and selling. Your livelihood. Uh, The mark, number three, stands for the beast's name. 
the beast's name stands for the mark, which is why we have all of these guesses as to who the beast is. And look, if you're creative enough, you can probably make anybody's name fit that. I mean, I'm probably the beast, right? Uh, so uh, let, let, let's be careful with that. Let's just be careful. If the word wisely is used, you need to wisely calculate it. You better use more wisdom than just speculation. It's just a good word from the scripture there. Uh, that's number four, by the way. The number must be wisely calculated in order to understand it, which means that we will be able to understand it when that person takes power. Christians will be able to understand it in the end times. True believers will get it. They will know who this is because they have the wisdom of God. They have the wisdom of Scripture to show them who it is. By the way, Nero Caesar, translated into Hebrew, um, if you do uh, uh, numerology, which was very popular back then, um, it does come out to 666. Uh, Nero Caesar comes out to that if you translate it into Hebrew. So, um, again, uh, there's a lot of signs pointing Nero's direction in this, at least for the first century church. Um, uh, Number five. Five and six are probably my favorite points about the 666. I think these are where, I mean, this is is big stuff here. Uh, It is the number of man, so it falls short of God's seven. For all the speculation on what this whole thing means, you can say at the very least, this is always falling short the beast never measures up the people that worship the beast never measure they always fall short and and we fall short too of course but we have the righteousness of christ given to us right you that are saved you have his holiness given to you You, you're, you're crucified with christ your life is hidden with christ you don't fall short anymore because you are in christ But people that follow the beast, as amazing as he seems, always fall short of perfection. And lastly, number six. The mark stands in contrast to the sealing of God's people. We saw that in Revelation 7, remember? Seal my people, seal my servants. And the sealing is a mark for ownership and a mark of protection. You're my people. You believe in me. You get my seal placed on you. People that have the seal don't get the mark. And people that take the mark are not sealed. It's really one or the other. And they stand in contrast to each other. Which is why the Antichrist hates Christians so much and wants to kill them. It also stands in contrast to the placement of God's word on the hand and the forehead, right? Because you have to take the mark on your forehead or hand. Remember Deuteronomy 6, where it says you should bind these these words of mine on you, place them on your forehead and on your hand. That's what God told the Old Testament people of Israel to do. And they actually had these things that they put around their head that would have little pieces of God's word that they would attach to their, their forehead, right? They actually did that in following Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jewish people did that. Now, this mark is like, again, either... Either you can follow God's word or you can follow the word of Satan and take that mark. But it's one or the other. God's word or the beast's word. Um, He stands in opposition to everything God says by what he says. So, why should we care about the mark of the beast today considering that we're not having to make that choice today? Um, Look at verse 9 and 10 with me now. This is a call to Christians 
uh, to believers to live during these end times. Whoever has an ear, let him hear. Sounds like Jesus, right? If you have an ear, you better hear this. This is important. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance. That The word literally in Greek is perseverance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. The mark of the beast is important for us today because even today we are tempted by our society, our culture, to compromise our faith. Uh, the word there, the last blank, is compromise. We are tempted to compromise our faith. This verse seems very negative. <laughs> verse 10, right? If anyone is to go into captivity, if, if they're going to take you prisoner, lock you up and torture you, they're going to take you, just the way it is. And if anyone is supposed to be killed with the sword, you're going to be killed. And you look at that and go, wow, that's super, super negative. <laughs> and yet I think, I think that verse takes the power out of, out of Satan's hands and puts it back with us because... I'll use my exam, my, 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 dream, my dreamless sleep, my, my dreamful sleep, nightmare sleep with my exam. Why are exams so scary? Often because we don't know what's on them until we get the paper in front of us. And that's the moment, right? Oh, that's what I was supposed to study, right? <laughs> why are, uh, on a more serious note again, why are phone calls from the doctor so scary? Because you don't know what he's going to say and you don't know how the test turned out. It's fearful. Fear-inducing. But if you already know what's going to happen, it takes a little bit of the sting out of it. My, my kids and I have talked about the Antichrist issue and they've heard about it at church and... and uh, and they felt a little bit of fear over some of that, and we've talked about it. And, and, and so Derek, Braden, and Caitlin, I'm talking to you. Stop coloring, all right? Look over here, all right? All right. Um, kids, I think Revelation 13 is telling you and telling us that if we were alive during this time, or even if we do have someone that hates us and wants to kill us for our faith, you don't have to fear. Because if you're going to die, you're going to die. And it's okay, because God's got that all wrapped up. He knows it's going to happen. And, and, and there may be some moments of agony in the garden, but, but you can stand up with resolve and say, if this is what's going to happen, I can accept that. I can accept that. I've been forewarned, this is what's going to happen. I think that's exactly one of John's purposes in writing this. If you're going to be killed, you're going to be killed. Be ready. Stand firm. It's a call. It's a call. When you think about generals that give a call to their troops, it's not like a, get ready, you know, this is going to be, you know, it's not a fearful call. We're honoring veterans today. I'm telling you, if you've received a speech from somebody, it's always a call to arms. It's always a call to courage and bravery. And yes, we may die, but we're going to take this. We're going to do this. That's what a call is. And so the church is called to stand up and not fear persecution and not compromise their faith. 
And I know, I know that no one's holding a machine gun to my head because I live in a free country. But there are plenty of people that call our beliefs bigoted, old-fashioned, hateful. You've heard it. And more and more when I watch the news, when I watch in any sitcom on TV, I see more and more that stands in direct opposition to what we would teach and believe in Scripture. You see it, and I see it. And let's face the facts. The teachings of Jesus, the kingdom of God that he proclaimed, is very, very political. It's very political. Because if you say Jesus is Lord, then you say the laws of this land are not. Not that God hasn't given us this great country and these great laws that are supposed to protect and provide for the good and punish the evil. I am grateful for the freedoms of this country. But what you're seeing in our culture today is a movement away from biblical morality. Biblical morality. And even though we don't necessarily have laws outlawing me saying something from the Bible, we could get there. We could. We could see that. Are we ready to be hated for standing on the Bible and saying this is truth? And if culture says I'm a bigot for standing on this, if culture says I am wrong and old-fashioned and nearsighted and intolerant, I'm standing here and you can say what you will about me. I'll just keep loving you. And I pray that my love will one day overwhelm your view of me, your opinion of me. I pray that my love will overwhelm your view and your hate of me. I think as a church, it seems like a lot of stuff in our society is going that direction. And I think as a church, we have to be ready for that and say, I'm not compromising. I will love you to the end, but I will not compromise what this book says. That is what Satan is going to do in the end times with the beast. And that is his tactic today as well. If we make them think that their views are old-fashioned and stupid and outdated and wrong, we can move people out of the church. We can, we can, we can help kids think that their parents are just so out of touch with this culture and they have no need for the word of God or the authority it has. Yes, I happily live under the authority of this country underneath our president and I pray for him. But ultimate loyalty is for God. And I hope you can amen that and believe that and live that. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, um, hard stuff, hard stuff. We, we prepare ourselves for the way we kind of see our country going, and yet we pray for revival at the same time. We know that your spirit can can move in this country in a powerful way and turn people's hearts back to you. So I pray you do that. I pray that revival would sweep through this nation. Do an amazing, incredible work. And Lord, if you choose to give us a time of, of greater opposition the way our brothers and sisters are facing across the world, if we do face greater opposition and are called many names and, and are kept from being really a, a true, valuable part of society because of that, I pray, God, we'd be faithful. Help us be faithful to love you more than anything.
and then to love our neighbors ourselves, even our unbelieving neighbor, even our neighbors that hate us. Help us love our enemies and so that they might be ashamed of the way they slander us. Help us not be hateful, mean-spirited, arrogant, know-it-alls. Help us be humble, truth-loving, God-fearing people, your church, your bride. A lot of churches get that wrong. I pray we get it right. Stand for truth. Love people like crazy. Help us do that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.